Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. As a storyteller, I'm interested both in what stories I need to tell and what stories people want to hear. When a question came up in our April 7th salon about how the collective trauma of the COVID-19 pandemic could impact the nature of storytelling, we thought it merited further exploration. Now, archaeologist and researcher specializing in ancient epidemics, Sarah Yeomans, and I are joined by Rob Latimer, historian, writer, and teacher as we delve into this. As we'll discuss, how we communicate these events can be critical to policy and societal shift in the brief window that we'll have before we'll want to forget and move on. We'll also look at how we could be poised for a golden age of story not unlike that of the modernist period of the 1920s. This 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 topic came up thanks to Jennifer and our um, April 7th salon, and it was so interesting. What you know, being that we're a lot of us are filmmakers, a lot of us are storytellers, we're creatives. Why? How does epidemic impact storytelling? Does it shift things? Does it change? Does it have any effect? Um, yes, no. How are we likely to come out of this as storytellers? So we thought it would be a really interesting thing to delve into that more deeply as a single topic instead of just a question on a different, on the original uh, epidemics topic. So, um, so here we are. So I'm really excited because our April 7th talk with Sarah Yeomans, archaeologist and researcher, uh, were our, was our biggest uh, hearthside salon to date um so i was very i'm very excited to have her back and i'm also very excited to welcome rob latimer who's been a friend of mine for ever um also who is a historian and a writer uh so i figured let me just get um a bunch of super smart people that know history and know story and let's explore this whole thing and see what we can what we can come up with sarah you had you talked about couching it in past pandemics, what would you, would you like to kick us off? Well, so I, I think my, it might help to kind of review the questions that, that we were pondering. Um, and after the last talk, we were going through, you know, I sort of led us through a handful of <laughs> uh, history's greatest hits in terms of some of the pandemic events. And one of the women uh, filmmaker who was listening in emailed us later and was asking, you know, about how these events are later narrated in, in a culture's story in, in the, and how are they recorded? How are they seen? How are these, uh, how is storytelling affected? Um, and so some of the questions she was asking are, you know, um, how did storytelling and narratives about uh, culture's change and in the way that they told their stories and is there any continuity between pandemics around the types of changes that happen so do we see patterns in the way that people are reacting and recording these events uh, and one of the things that that sort of stayed with me um, is what how do we think that this particular pandemic will impact storytelling uh, are we going to have are we going to see a whole rush of movies like quarantine rom-coms you know love under quarantine 
campaign or are we going to see currently writing one so apologies already (laughs) (laughs) certainly people are thinking about these things um and you know they they were they were interesting questions good questions it started me thinking about you know different events in history and what our evidence what the evidence is for this you know so how did these narrative how did these events change cultures narratives and of course it changes by culture uh, and, and and the farther back that we go our evidence is is harder to get a hold of right so when we're dealing with antiquity for example uh, only the elite were literate and writing and of those accounts we only have a fraction so it's hard to get at what ancient people really thought about these events we have to get at them uh, in more indirect ways we do have um, we do have primary source accounts of a handful of individuals that lived through the Antonine Plague in the second century, for example, or the third century Plague of Cyprian. That it was named after the eyewitness Cyprian, uh, who was uh, a third century uh, Greco-Roman, writing about these events. But in the earlier uh, parts of our history that we are studying, we get at them more abstractly. So in the second century, for example, we don't know what the the average person was thinking, because if the average person was writing about it, we don't have those accounts. But what we do have archaeologically is after that event, we find a lot more talismans and charms specifically to ward off Uh, evil vapors and humors. Uh, We find coins being minted in much greater quantities featuring Asclepius, the Greco-Roman god of health. Um, Apollo was the deity that was understood to both bring plague and have the power to mitigate it. And so there was a significant investment by city authorities around the empire uh, to create and erect more statues of Apollo and erect the the images of Apollo around the city walls. So, so we can see among uh, our archaeological evidence how some people were reacting. But as we move forward in history, it gets a little bit easier to discern because now we have more and more voices. Um, one thing I did notice, um, and I, I'll pass it to Rob because I know he's a historian as well, but you don't have a ton of literature following these events. Even the pandemic of 1918, um, you have one notable work by a woman named Catherine Ann Porter, Pale Rider, Pale Horse, Pale Horse, Pale Rider. Um, And it's notable precisely because it's one of our only narratives concerning that epidemic. Um, T.S. Eliot wrote The Wasteland during the Spanish flu pandemic, but it seems that other than religious narratives, after sort of a collective trauma like this, people don't wanna think about it anymore. Right now, people are binge watching movies like Contagion and Outbreak. And I'm, I'm not so sure that we're gonna see a whole lot of those movies made after this, but we'll see. I don't know. What do you think, Rob? Um. One of the, I do find it fascinating that the 1918 epidemic really doesn't, as she says, uh, as Sarah says, doesn't show up in the literature for two reasons. One, Pale Horse Bear Rider came out in 1939. Oh wow! Um, so it's it's she lived through it, um, but it is two decades after the fact. Um, 
after the country had obviously you know gone through and was still going through the depression at that point so they had other things also going on for that to be like the one true like pandemic narrative is somewhat odd especially when you consider what the years following world war one produced in terms of literary output i mean that's the lost generation that's you know outside the lost generation. you know it's virginia wolf it's faulkner um, and we have some of the, the greatest novels of the 20th century, some of the greatest narratives of the 20th century produced during the years following. And it was not something that stuck out in their mind. And one of the questions that I was asking myself is, was a problem for this is whether or not that's because of a desire to forget the pandemic or whether it was the fact that pandemics often are connected to other significant crises obviously the the 1918 epidemic comes in the midst of world war one um and the material and political effects of the war itself much more prominent um in terms of like literal physical destruction that remained long after the the flu had, had faded away um the ending of the the 19th century european um political system of great powers you know the the losing side there are no more monarchs russia loses its monarch they didn't lose uh germany and the ottoman empire and austria hungary empire the monarchs are all gone you now have forced democracies in place obviously the weimar republic in those years falls apart revanchism and the reparations uh imposed on the the losing side of world war one had a much more present effect in those countries um and then in the us we neither suffered massive loss of life from the pandemic nor massive loss of life from world war one um you know the 20s were an american decade both domestically and globally so it's it's one of those things i'm sure i wonder about what you know the narratives what you know will drive the narratives following this whether it will be concern i see i see stories now of like sports will never be the same again because we're never all going to want to be together um i don't know if that'll be the case uh, i think you know the much longer lasting effects will be how you know recovering from the economic disruptions that this has caused things like that obviously the cyprian plague comes in the midst of the third century crisis the antonine plague immediately precedes, um, you know, Marcus Aurelius's wars with the Marcomanni and, and the during, you know, during so, the Macrobani wars. Yeah, I mean, these are, they're accompanying, you know, uh, the plague of Justinian um, accompanies uh, and sort of, I think there's a much more direct connection there, it leads to Byzantine losses in Italy. Um, but those, those economic and political effects often are much more lasting, whereas the pandemics have this massive effect, but their causal relationship, I think, can fade. And I wonder to what degree, you know, what motivates people's fears and anxieties and so forth in the years following. Well, I hadn't quite put that together before, and I don't know why, because I was a literature major, so shame on me. But um, you're talking about like my favorite period in literature, all of all and i hadn't made that connection that it came out of a period of collective trauma and it's interesting that 
like you say, none of those books are about plague. They're about life and looking at like human failings and trying to understand, you know, how to navigate humanity in a way. So it's, it's almost, if I could just sum up the modernism movement in uh, two sentences. Um, but I mean, like, it seems like a lot of actual like existential, how to, how to human came out of it. So I'm wondering if that might be, if we're not going to have all the quarantine rom-coms come out of this, um, or what would what, what we say, the the storms, the cytokine storms, <laughs> the new YA series, the cytokine yeah. storms. Um, like if we're not having that, you know, are we going to have people really looking at what it means to be human and what it means to come back to humanity? Because I, I think, you know, you start talking about ball games and stuff. We're wired to want to be with each other, you know, and, and be social and be collective. So I think we're going to want to figure that out and, Perhaps storytelling is one of the ways. I think um, with with the, in terms of the Spanish pandemic, and we we come back to that because that is our most recent data point in terms of, of of a comparable situation. One of the one of the things at work, perhaps, is that because it was during the war, there was a very tight grip both in the U.S. and Europe um, on the media by those governments. There was a great deal of media suppression and that is how it ends up being called the Spanish flu because Spain being a neutral power were the first to report it widely uh, in their their newspapers. And so to the degree, I mean, Americans certainly knew in their own cities, cities like Philadelphia that were very, very hard, hard hit, they certainly knew it was happening there, but the degree to which these, these reports made it out of the cities into the country, uh, across the country, there were deliberate efforts to make sure that didn't happen. Uh, and in earlier pandemic events, I'm thinking of the, the London plague in the 17th century, and of course the, you know, sort of the bomb, the, <laughs> the grandfather of them all, the 14th century, epidemic, pandemic, um, again, you don't have a lot of literate voices. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do notice, especially um, having, you know, living in Italy, we're in, in these spaces, you do notice in the latter part of the 14th century, there is, you know, they told their stories, their biblical stories through art, because again, the majority of the population was not literate. You do see in the later 14th century and into the 15th century, right up until what we call the Renaissance. But in that hundred year period, you see a significant increase in these depictions of the biblical narratives, the gospel narratives in which Jesus is healing diseases. Mm. He's healing the leper. He is um, resurrecting Lazarus. Uh, you see a lot more of this imagery um, than you do prior and and into the early modern period. You see le- early modern and Renaissance is the, the, roughly the same period there. Um, but in that 150-year period, you see a lot more imagery um, in terms of these specific types of miracles. And I have to wonder if that came about because of the 
the Black Death, the, the 1348, 1351 bubonic plague epidemic, that, that, that plague killed half the citizenry of Florence um, and about a third of Europe. It took Europe, th took the world's population 300 years to recover um, in terms of numbers after that. So, and of course, you know, the, it, it changed their entire society and their economic structure. Mm -hmm. But um, so while we may not have stories per se from that period, or we don't have a lot of voices in our time from that time, we do have some visual representations yeah. of the types of issues that they were concerned about or thinking about or focusing on. Yeah, Rob, what do you think about why, why did the stories turn to Jesus healing plague victims? Uh, I mean, I, I certainly think that's a, a very reasonable supposition, um, you know, in an aftermath of such a uh, devastating, you know, sickness and, and death. And especially, you know, we, for as scary as this is now, um, we understand it, or like nominally. There are clearly some people who don't, but, um, but, but we understand germ theory. We understand what a virus is. Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, a it, world that's still working off of like the miasma theory of, of illness. And, you know, um, that's, uh, that's something that causes, um, that it does cause, as you say, you know, an existential sort of, um, crisis when we see it, uh, I gather in the last discussion, um, the, the plague of, of, of Athens, um, uh, during the Peloponnesian war was discussed, um, Am I correct in that? You know, I, I didn't. I didn't start oh. with that one. I, I went into it a bit, but okay. um, yeah. And it's it's you know Athens gets all cooped up in the city because Sparta's you know constantly besieging them, and, and um, massive chunk of the population dies. Their leader Pericles dies, and one of the the things that's accounted for in the major account of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides is that the people of Athens kind of went wild um, and started disregarding laws and. Really, the, the yeah. you know stopped uh, um, observing proper religious ritual and and so forth because there was sort of this like we're all going to die anyways. None right. of this has any meaning. There's nothing you know, um, and that's one possible reaction to that existential crisis. The other is you know in a world that has I think to compare the 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 religious tenor of of um, classical Athens to say you know, the, the 14th century in Europe, um, the 14th century in Europe probably has a much more, the average person has a much more, uh, a belief in a, a much more interventionist and, and direct involvement of God and the plan of things. Um, the Christian God is certainly one that, that um, sends plague and removes plague, that heals and, you know, gives life and, and takes it. And so for them to turn to a religious explanation um, for that and, and a religious ward against it. You know, we see in the Roman world is say, in the aftermath of the Antonine plague, there's a bunch of, of monuments and superstitions mm -hmm. and, and marks and so forth. This is, I mean, that's the, the Christian, medieval Christian equivalent of that. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting that it could be that like what they turned to at that point was either, hey, 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 everyone come back and trust that this, this is the thing that's gonna work. Let's be citizens again, or, or inspiring hope, you know, like this is, we can, this is the thing that can help you. Um, and it's, Rob, it's fascinating that you were saying that people started really breaking the law. Um, I mean, I think this, we've seen a drop in overall crime just because people aren't 
exposed to each other so much. But I mean, like in terms of behavior norms, like I've certainly been jaywalking all the time because I can, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, it's like those. And I actually was driving, I drove for the first time a couple of days ago and I actually had a moment of like, I stopped at a red light and then I went, oh gosh, is the person behind me going to stop? Do we still stop for red lights? And then I was like, oh yeah, okay. The, the social norms, like what is still in place? And, you know, I could see a story coming out of like, here, hey kids, adhere to social norms still. I think, I think one thing, you know, in terms of storytelling and filmmaking um, and the way that we, I, I don't know if memorialize is the right word, the way that we will sort of collectively as a society record and process this event in our arts. Um, it's going to be very unique this time around. And I'm interested to see how that plays out because first of all, we have a many, many people are literate, most people in this country, and I'd say a huge percentage of the human population, far more than any other event, pandemic event in history. So we're going to have many more voices. And we also have many different types of media now. Um, we have, you know, I belong to an academic association, the American Association of Medical Historians. There, there is such a thing, believe it or not. And they're already collecting interviews of healthcare workers uh, and wow. pharmacists and scientists and research. They're already creating an audio archive of wow. these interviews. So this may be very unique this time around. I mean, I think it almost certainly will be because we have so many more voices and so many more outlets to tell these stories than had ever been accessible to people before in, in the 1918 pandemic um, because of the suppression yeah. There, there may not have been this this collective awareness that we attribute to them retroactively now. So, I mean, with something like this is a little bit off, but Boccaccio, with that, with the Decameron happening, was that was he writing that during the plague, or was that something that came out after? Because that seems like it was definitely like here, let's distract ourselves. Like this is the theme of the book and this is the theme of a lot of the stories is like, let's distract ourselves from all this horribleness that's going on. Uh, Rob, do you want to give a, 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 just for people who aren't familiar with the Decameron, I, I know that. I mean, uh, the Decameron's a collection of uh, what are often just termed plague narratives, um, both fictional and semi-non-fictional, like fictionalized um, stories of uh, life within Italy, but often with, um, you know, incorporating uh, a number of also traditional um, folk narrative structures and, and moral tales. Um, it's, it's used by both historians for sort of the, like, a, a literary, an English major uh, or an English uh, PhD would take very different things from it than, than a historian. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. we, we look at it and we look at like, oh, this is what daily life was like and the physical culture and so forth. Because he's writing not from a, um, like an ecclesiastical viewpoint of the elites. He's writing stories of, of you know, essentially uh, common day-to-day mm -hmm. -day life. Well, um, just to couch it for, because I should have said this at the beginning, it's a collection of stories about a group of elites that go off to a villa um, to get away from the plague and try to keep themselves isolated and safe and to pass the time. 
they start telling each other these stories and they're often set in themes, like groups of themes. Um, so it almost sounds like it was a way to capture folk tales, like, like an anthology, like, oh, let's get this down while we can. Mm -hmm. Not like that was their tech, but like that was maybe Boccaccio's larger. Um, but it, it also, and again, as you said, historians take different messages from this. You know, I can't read, I don't know, I'd have to look it up. I don't know if Boccaccio wrote it during or immediately after yeah. the 14th century plague. But my takeaway from that is this interesting snapshot that they didn't, there was no such thing as germ theory at the time, but they certainly understood that contact with other humans in some form <laughs> was a big part of the problem and how this spread. And so you have seven women and three men head off to this village and close themselves up um, to wait out this, this plague. Um, and so it's almost like one of those Russian dolls, you know, you, you get a snapshot of how, people understood the disease and what measures they could take or some if they were able to take to avoid it. And then the stories that they stop, start swapping in between them give us these little vignettes of, you know, what life might have been like for an upper-class person in 14th century Italy. Um, That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're in a villa in the Tuscan countryside. Um, but I think one of the things that's so unique about Boccaccio's Decameron um, is it it's one of her only accounts that's, from yeah. that time. Um, it's so unique. And again, literacy was a rare thing, um, but we don't have as many voices. We yeah, have so tax records. Like we get at these things from, you know, land records and, and mm -hmm loss of tax revenue and labor shortages, you know, we, we come at it more obliquely when we look at the demography and the statistics of that plague, but um, yeah, so, actual accounts. So I'm not sure we could actually call the Decameron a reaction, a, a sort of general story reaction to the trauma or just the one voice that we happen to have and that's the way he decided to. And, and I mean, Boccaccio is, uh, he certainly, just by being, you know, dint of being educated, he's a member of the elite, but by the standards of the mid 14th century, he's an outsider to the traditional academic elite, the intellectual elite. He's the son of a merchant. Um, you know, he's a member of, of the sort of like economic aristocracy that rises in the Italian city-states. He's not uh, a traditional, he's not a member of the nobility by birth. Um, He's not, uh, certainly most of our authors in the Middle Ages are uh, ecclesiastical. Um, that's about the only place where literacy is uh, truly you know, common. Um, and he's, a, you know, this new urban wealth um, brought about by trade, the same trade that brought the plague um, is, you know, that's where he is. Um, this Italian, this new Italian urban elite. Um, sure. So he's not, he's certainly not a baker, but he's also not someone who's got, you know, five generations of noble titles going back and brothers who were at the Abbey before him and things like mm. that. Um, and that may be, as you say, it's one of our only narratives. And in part, um, I, I wonder how much, and, and unfortunately, you know, Renaissance literature, not necessarily my wheelhouse, um, but the degree to which the the people who were writing the voices that were common ecclesiastical voices are largely removed from the play mm. um 
you know, a monk in, an, in, a, in a rural abbey um, is not facing piles of body, you know, on the Rialto Bridge, although I don't know if the Rialto Bridge was built now that I mentioned yeah, that. I don't but, remember. You know, what not building, not seeing it, you know, it's like, you know, they are not, they're not praying in front of Santa Croce, like that one I know exists. Um, so, um, and I wonder if this is, you know, uh, Sarah just mentioned how much more information is available now, how many more voices can be elevated, um, even compared to 1918, uh, you know, the fact that most of the countries that were involved in the war censored knowledge of it, so it didn't enter the public knowledge. And even then, so many fewer voices, you know, we don't see, you know, Virginia Woolf comes after, she's one of the first, you know, very prominent 20th century female authors, um, you know, Gertrude Stein, in the lost, another lost generation author. Um, things are so much more democratized now, which yeah. is, I, I would assume it's gonna be something that's very good in that voices are gonna be able to rise that otherwise wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But I also think we're seeing how that can be very bad in that it really is, there are many instances where it's the fulfillment of Isaac Asimov's, you know, like democracy means that my ignorance is equal to your knowledge. <laughs> and we're seeing that people are really creating their own narratives, not necessarily literary narratives, but you know, storytelling as explanatory narrative of what the story of our society is at this moment. People are picking and choosing their own versions, whether it's supported by fact or not. You know, you're seeing conspiracy theories about 5G, you know, cell service spreading this and, and people legitimately mentioning it. Um, you know, bloggers with half a million followers on Instagram are spreading conspiracy theories and they have an audience from the same democratizing mechanisms that allow, you know, lesser known voices to rise as well. I've noticed that even even more than war, conspiracy theories are a definite common denominator mm -hmm. <laughs> that run through all these events. I mean, even back in antiquity. Um, but I, you know, the the again, coming back to the 1918, I think of the Roaring Twenties, you know, Rob mentioned that, you know, the, the World War I on its own was traumatic, particularly for those in Europe. And then you have this pandemic and then, and then it's over. There are, you know, especially in this country, the austerity measures that were there are no longer there. And then the twenties roar. Uh, and and I think Fitz, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, they they do actually explicitly address this it, that we didn't want to remember. Mm. We wanted to party and play and be young and not have to think about death and destruction mm. and and poverty and uncertainty. And so it, you know, the twenties were almost this sort of, in my mind anyway, this kind of cultural rejection of, you know, this awful decade <laughs> that, yeah. that they had gone through before. And, and so I think if it's something collective and that massive, you, you may find people unwilling to kind of deep dive into it. But I, when I was thinking about this, I thought of uh, something that happened right after the Titanic sank one of the women who was saved, one of the survivors was an actress in silent films. And I can't remember her name, but while they were still investigating the Titanic accident, she made a film 
about the Titanic singing, sinking. Like wow. it wasn't, it wasn't too soon for that event, <laughs> you know, in terms of, you know, what Americans were, were wanting to see or yeah. be entertained with or be, you know, fascinated by. Um, but then of course and, that wasn't a collective. It was her telling her story, which people were probably hungry for. Like what really happened? You were there. Right. Like the Titanic was a, I think, you know, I use a more contained incident. You know, it happened there to those mm-hmm. people on mm-hmm. that ship, like a very specific set of circumstances. Whereas pandemics by definition <laughs> can happen to anyone. Well, this brings me to an interesting um, point that uh, that we had talked about in the in the pre sort of lead up to this, the processing the grief versus losing our appetite for the grief. And and you brought up the point which I was like, oh God, I didn't think about that. Nine eleven, a very collective trauma for a lot of us, and really have not seen any nine eleven movies yet. It has not been a thing that we've chosen to address in popular culture in terms of story so and would you want to like would yeah. you want to see a 9-11 movie i don't think i would i don't know rob right. what do you think i would actually argue that we have movies connected to 9-11 that are not about 9-11 the events mm-hmm. we do have those i mean like flight 93 was a movie you know and so forth um there was a pretty straightforward recounting of mm-hmm. uh that and certainly Flight 93, I think, has what these other movies that I, I would allude to are, are connected. The, the story of Flight 93 is a story of at least a moral victory over the event. You know, the, the passengers stood up, they resisted, they died, but they died heroes. And I think you can look at the, the stories that followed things like, um, you know, in the genre of like American Sniper, where you know we got a lot of of um, what uh, you know people a, a word that was a critic applied to Black Hawk Down, but it, I think has come to sort of describe a whole genre of military movies of war porn um, of of these movies where we're sort of you know it's like these are the people who are going to keep us safe from our the you know the return of this sort of thing, and we're going to elevate these people. Um, and there's a few movies that aren't like that. Hurt Locker, Jarhead are sort of pushing back against that. But a lot of, there's a lot of like sort of rah-rah stuff. And that wasn't just, I don't think that was, wasn't just jingoism. I think when you have a threat that's hard to put your finger on, you know, a bunch of shadowy folks in caves or whatever that is, you want it to be a much more substantial thing. And so I wonder what that'll be, because obviously a pandemic is a is literally an invisible enemy. Um, and, you know, it is scary because you can't see it coming. It is scary because it can affect everybody. Um, and and I think that is something that is shared with things that are like World War One, World War Two, where everybody was affected. And there isn't, a you know, a guarantee that it's not coming back um, again, because, you know, they followed 20 years after another, that sort of thing. I think there are movies that do address it, but sort of mm-hmm. manifesting the, the metaphorical shield. Well, and everything yeah. you're saying, it, it sounds it, like it, I see the parallel between the war porn movies after 9-11 and the drawing, the, the paintings in the churches of Jesus healing the lepers and healing the plague victims. Both of them are a 
sort of, hey, hey, we got this. We have a way to control this. We have a way to deal with this. So I wonder if our films after this are going to be largely to do with con controlling an invisible threat yeah. or, or explaining it in some way. I think there's we a, are. Oh, go ahead, Rob. Um, there's also the other genre of movies, I think, that connect to that of sort of the a hero is a middle-aged white man doing his job movies. Um, like the the procedurals about like the Boston Marathon, mm -hmm. Sully, um, mm -hmm. things like that, where it it again it's it's an elevating of of common mundane heroism. Um, fair for the common because man. again that's something that you know it's like these are people who are everywhere and they will protect us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It would be nice to see some medical hero movies. I <laughs> I bet you we will. That uh, yeah, sense. and I I wonder you know I think what Rob was saying that we, we, we haven't seen, you know, sort of the glamorization of the attack uh, in New York or mm -hmm. in, in Washington or in flight 93. Um, they're not glamorizing it. They're not making it, you know, Denzel Washington um, films out of it. Um, but they are, they, you know, it's true. We came at it more obliquely, you know, in, in the nineties, who was the enemy always, you know, it was the Soviet Union, you know, right after the wall fell, like in through the eighties, certainly, you know, all of those movies, it was the Soviets and then the enemy shifted, you know, now it's, it's, you know, in the middle East and who's our enemy going to be now, you know, you're already seeing attributions of blame, you know, China did this, China did that. Uh, well, China did do a few things <laughs> and they didn't do some other things, but this is not, a, a China, you know, we are the face of a pandemic. It's the way we treat the environment. It's our relationships with other countries. It's how we manage our resources. And we are allowing ecosystems to crash up against each other. Um, and it's also just the natural world. We could have half the population on this planet that we do, and we'd probably have less of these events, but we'd still have them. And and that is a very conceptually difficult thing for humans, for most of us to accept that, you know, we don't necessarily have dominion over the natural world. We are very much a vulnerable part of it and that's uncomfortable. Um, and so mm. you start to see people trying to, you know, oh, it was created in a lab because that's easier. That's, that's, a, that's a less difficult thing it's to get our reaction. It's so a yeah. deliberate action and there are, are culpable agents. Um, it's, it's easier, I think, psychologically for a lot of us to, to want to create this concrete and easily you know, uh, grasped uh, cause and effect mm -hmm. when in fact, you know, like it happens. There certainly were many contributing factors and we should be looking hard at how to mitigate those in the future. But ultimately we don't have the control that we think we do and that's right. uncomfortable and I, I would love to see films address that i'd like to see us get in you know i'd like to see films sort of thoughtfully bring up these philosophical issues yeah well it does seem like there were in the if we go back to the golden age of um the, the these classic the literature classics that rob was talking about earlier they um they did sort of address 
how do we live life and how do we be human? So I could see that the, these now, what could come out of this is being a second golden age of more, you know, how do we get comfortable with the discomfort of con the lack of control that, that is the true fact of humanity? Um, yeah, humans are very bad at that kind of abstraction. Um, you know, we're, uh, you know, as you say, we want to see, you know, you mentioned like, that's why this, this idea, oh, it was made in a lab. Because then there's somebody who did it and they did a bad thing and we can go beat those people. Um, but recognizing that like, yeah. you know, recognizing that climate change plays a part. And I think, you know, you can see we have a global pandemic, but very localized responses um, and a real denial that like, we all have to be on the same page. Um, and I think a real denial more broadly of like the global nature of all human society now. Like people talk, you know, I, I teach, you know, global econ and people, you know, when people talk about like the US economy as if it's somehow separate from the global economy, like that's not, that's not how it works. Yeah. You know, it's is an insanely complex intertwined reality. Um, and, you know, look at the 1918 uh, pandemic, how quickly it spread throughout the world, we are way more connected now, like infinitely more connected. People are flying all over the place, goods and services, travel all over the place, food, 20% of our food is imported in the United States. Um, if, if this pandemic came from food, everybody would be already exposed by you know, to it. And, and to deny that and get very, you know, territorial and so forth, I think, you know, shows just how poorly we really understand the nature of, of our society and the nature of, of the modern world um, and thus any understanding of, of really how it, yeah. you know, we have well, to address this and how we possibly could address it. If that then that's how they you know and and you're right and these these are the types of things that are keeping me up at night but I also see you know we we can you know, we will there will be scholars and and you know not just scholars but everyone will be dissecting the you know the the fails and the fumbles as well as you know the hindsight is always 2020 right so we'll be able to see you know where things went wrong where things went right but one of the things that i find really um encouraging is governments do what governments do and they they have an agenda but these chinese scientists you know it mapped this genome within a few weeks and distributed the paper to the scientific community both within and without outside of their country. A lot of them got into trouble for that. Several of them haven't been heard from since, but they got that information out there through the scientific channels, through the channels created between colleagues going around their government. And so what that tells me is that, you know, globally we are interconnected, but our economies are connected, but we are also interconnected in really positive ways, being mm -hmm. able to, to share this information and do this, you know, in spite of the lack of collaboration or transparency. Um, so, you know, we are, we're very connected in good ways as well. And I think the real heroes of this story, they're going to be our scientists, they're going to be our medical care workers, and they're not going to solve it tomorrow, 
but they are working around the clock. And I think there's probably more collaboration between them informally <laughs> than is, you know, officially um, facilitated through uh, official informal channels. Mm -hmm. Well, so it sounds like there's going to be the, the processing of the psychological fallout for all of us, which could lead to some real golden age work of examining the human condition. Um, it might be more oblique about the pandemic and not necessarily pandemic movies per se, um, which I think is interesting. In terms of the obliqueness, it's like um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Love in the Time of Cholera. It's yeah. not about that, but it is the inciting incident for the story. So it's like an oblique. So we, I could see things like that, or even like the Decameron. Like it's not about mm -hmm. the plague, but it's a jumping off point for the story. And interestingly, that one was a collection of, you know, let's have an anthology of all these things that are important to us. Or Camus, the plague Mindy puts in. Yeah, no, and 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 they're right. Um, Alejandro's point, Mindy's point. They're, they're absolutely right. I was thinking about that particular book. It it wasn't about the cholera per se, but it was set in that uh, in that time and place. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I'm. I think that it, it was really neat to see that filmmakers and storytellers are already thinking about this. And I hope they take that responsibility very seriously because mm -hmm. how a society crafts its narratives and that is their historical legacy. That's how yeah. people will be accessing this event a hundred years from now. Yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting too is like, you know, we talked about it's sort of too soon for direct 9-11 movies in a lot of ways. Like people don't seem to want that, but yet we have never stopped with the World War II movies. Not, I mean, <laughs> Casablanca was made during World War II. And it's like, we've never stopped with the World War II movies. And it's like, it's, it, there's something about that, that conflict that continues to fascinate us. And yet someone else just said in the comments, we don't have a lot of AIDS epidemic movies, you know? And I think I would assert that that's because, oh, that's the thing that we could, the AIDS plague is easily dismissed by a lot of people as, oh, that happened to them over there. It didn't happen to me, which is horrible. Um, uh, well, I, I was actually thinking about the AIDS epidemic and mm -hmm. obviously because of, particularly because of, of the, it spread in the, the 80s um, and it being at first primarily limited to, to certain communities being an epidemic rather than pandemic, um, it in many ways, you know, you can see uh, an elevation of the the narratives of the victims and their voices. Um, mm -hmm. The AIDS epidemic comes, you know, Stonewalls uh, in, you know, 69, the birth of the pride movement. You've got uh, Anita Baker and the, the pushback against gay rights laws in the late 70s. And then the AIDS epidemic hits. The, the, the gay rights movement really was 10, 15 years old and to then have this disease threatening their community in the 80s while not only were people ignoring it, like literally uh, the president was laughing about it on national television, um, telling jokes about it. Um, that had a, a, a sort of a catalyzing force on the gay rights movement and those voices became louder because they demanded them to be louder. Mm -hmm. You know, they simply started shouting 
and and I, you start to see, you know, a change that's the beginning of a change in the way that that community is depicted in our storytelling, um, mm -hmm. and certainly an artistic, um, you know, obviously there's tons of debate over, you know, which 19th century person was secretly gay and, and just didn't talk about it. Um, and, and that community has been part of, that identity has been part of artistic, but you see a very proud artistic declaration that's, you know, it's the era of, of people like Keith Haring. Um, you know, it's one of the defining artistic styles of the eighties, um, things like that, where people are much more prominent and refusing to be pushed aside or, or in the corner. Um, yeah, and I wonder if there's going to be that sort of thing because this this despite it being a pandemic, it is not affecting everybody equally. Um, you know, well, that's true. There are communities that are harder hit, particularly yeah, people who are and people who are economically disadvantaged who are still having to work at grocery stores because they're essential, or you know, work at Taco Bell because that's yeah. essential, um, but they're not essential enough to be paid a living wage. And and you know, there's a breaking point. And I wonder if we see that in narrative or if we see that politically, but I, I can't imagine that will come to nothing. That is actually, I, I think that that could be an interesting thr thrust of the uh, coming stories is shining a light of value on people that have been marginalized. Like if we could have a bunch of those stories, that would be pretty great. Like, mm -hmm. cause that's, I remember being really affected by Philadelphia when I saw it because I was, you know, not really paying attention. I was a kid. And, um, and then I saw Philadelphia and I was like, oh my God, like this. Okay. I get it now. Like, so it would be really nice to have that kind of, Hey, look, I'm sitting here with my Trader Joe's bags and I'm a white girl and I'm fine. I've got food, you know, but it's like, not everyone is having that kind of quarantine. We have a, an opportunity here. I mean, this is awful, of course. Like, I mean, it's it's affecting everyone unevenly, but it is affecting everyone. But it is a very unique opportunity as a society, as a culture, as individuals to rethink our priorities, rethink our relationship with the environment, with each other, with our government. You know, we are now seeing in very stark terms what happens when you have a, a huge segment of the population that doesn't have health care? And now 20, over 20 million people have just lost their jobs. I'm willing to bet they're also going to lose their health care, you know, most of them. And we're going to see huge fallout for them for this. So it, it, it's, I think, time, it's an opportunity anyway for us to rethink all of this. Are we as a society okay with this? Are we going to collectively come together and shift it? And I think storytellers are gonna be a huge part of that, but there's a window. You know, yeah. humans do not want to dwell on these things. You know, everyone says, get back to normal, get back to normal. Yes, in the course of my daily life, I would like to get back to normal, but not, there are certain things about normal that would be great to change mm -hmm. um, and how we record these events and more importantly, even how we communicate these events, I think are going to be critical factors in whether or not these changes can come about. And storytelling as whether it's fiction and, and that sort of thing, or whether it's the more direct explanatory, um, 
I know both Heidi and I, I don't know if anybody else has, uh, is uh, familiar with Lynn Ferguson and her uh, You Tell Yours storytelling workshop. She has a, a weekly event or is it monthly? I think it's weekly now because it's Zoom. Um, <laughs> called, um, it's called uh, Fish and Bear. Yes. Um, and it's that, that the original reason we told stories was to communicate usable information. You know, mm -hmm. the lake over there has fish. The cave over there has a bear. You go to the lake, stay away from the cave. And, <laughs> you know, and, and that this is, you know, this is why we tell stories. And sometimes it's much more direct, even if it's fictional. Orwell's narratives, very clearly, you know, warnings against, you know, totalitarianism, warning against, you know, the strength of, of a state of the state. Other things, you know, much more subtle, but they're still, you know, even something that we're writing to forget, you know, uh, Hemingway writes The Sun Also Rises, um, you know, a couple years after World War One um, and uh, the, the pandemic. And that's in many ways, you know, an escapist you know, you get because it's not about those events. It's about a bunch of people going and running with bulls. Um, but it's in. But you know, it is about, as Heidi said, you know, it's about like how. What does it mean to live? Mm. Um, this isn't, you know, uh, this isn't his World War One narrative. Um, it's it's the you know, uh, it's the narrative about what we do in light of World War One. I have uh, Jennifer in the comments over here says, as, as an educator, storytelling is an essential method of effective teaching. How would you approach this topic to teach children about these topics? Rob is an educator. Um, I mean, that is what history, you know, history is about. Um, this is one of the reasons, uh, so this is actually something, uh, history teachers, we talk about this all the time of like, what is the role of the history teacher? How much, you know, lecturing should you do? Um, whereas lecturing in some cases is actually like not a wonderful way to, to convey information. Um, there's a math teacher here smiling at me. Um, she knows if she just talks at her students all day long, they're not gonna learn as well as many other methods. With history, there is an element of the historian as storyteller. Um, history literally means investigation. Um, you investigate, you find out the evidence, and then you create an explanatory narrative conveying the evidence. I mean, that is why it's called history. Um, that's literally uh, the predecessor of Thucydides, Herodotus, uh, wrote his explanation. It was his version of the Persian Wars. He's like, these are my books. I'm Herodotus of Halicarnassus, and my name is on it. it. Belongs to me. This is my story explaining events to you. Um, and the, I think, you know, if you're, you're looking, Mindy's a science, or uh, Jennifer's a science teacher, I think you're going to use, you know, you're not gonna use it quite as directly as uh, a historian would, where you really are creating explanatory narrative of cause and effect. Um, but there is, there is cause and effect in, you know, in nature. Um, you know, you can you can examine the cause and effect of our responses to this. Um, cause and effect of how, you know, changes in the human ecosystem make pandemics more deadly or less deadly. Um, 
you know, there is storytelling as explanatory narrative, I think is a, a universal uh, educational tool um, because we understand via those sorts of connections. Mm-hmm. Well, I think every writer, as we write everything we write, we're, we're trying to prove a certain premise. We're trying to teach something, you know, underlying, you know, just be a good person. Or if you, um, if you recognize that you're a Jedi, you can also help destroy the Death Star, you know, whatever it is we're trying to teach by telling a story. Um, so I think we have an opportunity now to tell stories that teach how to, how to be human, how to grapple with this kind of thing. And like, you know, get it better maybe, next time. Maybe how to be better humans. <laughs> yeah. Like what's the world we want to look like? What, um, Krista says as an elementary school teacher, she's often introduces a new unit in history or science by reading a picture book. Often they'll be fiction, but they'll be a great introduction to the subject matter. Um, and they're a great way to address feelings and other common emotions. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Like that goes back to cave paintings. I mean, we, we understand simple pictures as a way to convey story. Images are very powerful vehicles for storytelling, um, and and that's what the church used for millennia. Because again, yeah. you know, most people not being literate, that there's a reason you see the same narratives in churches over and over and over. Yeah, you know, those are the those are the the points that the church wanted the congregation to have, and mm-hmm. um, and that's the power of visual imagery. And Krista's point about the children's book is a very good one. That's why illustrators are so important in a children's book. You know, yeah. they, they tell at least half the story. One of the other things that, one of the other uh, types of movies, and this is not my thought, this is actually uh, from a senior thesis, senior in high school thesis uh, from a former student looking at the rise of superhero movies mm-hmm. um, in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, mm. And that uh, this belief in that superheroes are inherently an authoritarian um, element, you know, an authoritarian character. We don't trust, uh, particularly because the MCU starts in like 2008. So it's not right after 9-11, but it's after say like Iraq and we're now getting weary and we don't really necessarily trust our government to protect us. So now we have Tony Stark, a, a, <laughs> the arms brilliant, dealer. Yeah. a brilliant businessman, billionaire scientist. Um, you know, uh, the person that Elon Musk imagines himself to be, um, <laughs> you know, and he's going to protect us. You know, these these heroes that use science and there are the mystical, you know, there's obviously the Thor, you know, and his dreamy eyes. But if you look at... Um, Seriously, Chris Hemsworth, come on. Um, but it, but oh, if you yeah, look at like, you. Oh, the Avengers are, the Avengers, you know, they're Tony Stark's, you know, this central character. We have the throwback to like Americana with Captain America, but you've got Bruce Banner, who's a scientist. You've got S.H.I.E.L.D., which is using technology mm-hmm. to defend against. Who's our, our best hero on the DC side? Not Superman. Superman is boring as crap. Everybody's favorite hero is Batman who is a billionaire genius with a bunch of gadgets and otherwise he's completely normal. He's keeping everybody safe through extra legal means, but whatever, you know, like. Well, and everything that's great uh, and everything with Black Panther is like, the technology is so So, awesome. It's like, yes, science and technology will save us. Yeah. Yeah. And it will, 
eventually. Technology mm. and science is what's going to get us through this eventually. It's just yeah, it doesn't destroy us first. Yeah, it's just well, yeah. <laughs> it's a, there's there's flip sides to it yes. certainly. Mia, um, here, let me unmute you. I saw you taking notes. What's going on? Hi. So um, thank you for creating this space. Um, it. Um, appeals to both the geek side, history side of me and the writer. So I really appreciate it. Awesome. And there's a couple of things. Um, I think when I think, well, I'm from New York. And so I will, I grew up in New York. I was there with September 11th. And what I think, what I've observed, I think in American history is that we're not often quick to tell the stories where we're either the victim or we're wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we typically don't. There's been more movies about how we found Bin Laden, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> getting back. And I feel like World War II, in some respects, you know, we were triumphant. You know, we beat this person. So it makes sense. We have a consistent history of only highlighting when we feel like we won. And, right. you know, and we definitely don't admit our wrongs, right? So that completely is something to me that is a consistent trend. I think when we think about when you were bringing up technology, it's interesting because because we are so we can fly anywhere within a day, also attributed to how quickly the virus spread. So on one hand, it's like we are more connected, but that relatively quickness, wanting to move faster than ever, actually caused something to spread. But at the same time, um, I feel like a good thing and trying to think about it from a story standpoint, it almost feels like we're going to have to be more like journalists because yeah. now anyone with a phone has a platform to tell whatever version of their story. So to get a consistent sense of what this will be historically is not as easy because everyone has access to publish it, yeah. which I think is going to take more time to actually get down, to, to distill it down to these mm that actually consistently happen and I do think it's going to look differently in different neighborhoods right because if you don't have I mean I work very closely and support homeless community I'm in LA now and they didn't even know coronavirus was happening yeah. how would they yeah and they had no idea and the way they found out was realizing there was less people on the street you know and then when they're you know places they would go to charge their phones you know so Oh and my gosh. That just don't have access, right? So, and I mean, and that's one community, but there's several, like you were saying, people who have the essential jobs, but we totally last elections did not want to increase minimum wage. Most people, you know, most people can't live off of $12 an hour or whatever mm -hmm. it is. You know, that's not even feasible in any, most cities. Um, so I do think um, it's, I think it's, it's, I feel like when you can weigh in, I'm just curious with those bits and pieces, I feel like as writers, creatives, we actually have to be more like journalists. It's, I don't even think it's about just fictionally creating a world or maybe before you can even create a world, you have to do like extensive mm -hmm. research who will be biased to our own experiences, you know? Where I live is very different than where someone else lives and how they're experiencing this is going to be different. And I almost think maybe the way that this gets recorded in history would actually be the most accurate, perhaps because you're getting more voices. Whereas also in previous plagues and times, 
only certain elites or rulers at the time, they're who wrote history, right? Mm -hmm. It's always their voice. Yeah. Women's voices during that time either, right? So it's like who controls? And now in our culture where so many of us can control our own narratives, I wonder if we don't get uh, actually a, a better picture as being, you know, very diverse in mm -hmm. where um, and I don't know if it will look as monolith like, oh, this is this is it. This was the account, you know? Yeah. It, it'd be interesting for a historian in 100 years to look back and go, oh, I have this wealth of stories and voices, which, you know, what are the experiences? Which ones were factual and which ones were just, you know, yahoo conspiracy, weirdo, whatever, you know, what really happened here? Like, will they have a harder time deciding what really happened here? Or will that actually hopefully be just more complete? Like, here's what happened here. And here's how it affected these people. And here's how these people experienced it. And here's how these people experienced it. So it's a fuller picture. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, you mentioned historians looking back. Um, and I, I'm sure Sarah can attest, we both work, you know, in, a, in an era where there's a lot less sources um, and certainly, you know, uh, she, you know, the gets to dig in the ground a little bit as well. But, um, but in the ancient world, you often have like a source that covers mm -hmm. thirty years. <laughs> if you're you lucky, have, you have a source. That's it. Um, <laughs> I had a, I had a friend who wrote his dissertation, and he would do entire chapters of off of like an, a fragment of papyrus, um, and I'm just like that's awful. It's one of the reasons I'm a medievalist uh, and go back to classical and don't do like, you know, classical Greece because I wanted at least some sources to work with. But a modern historian, like a medievalist, you cover, you know, hundreds of years in your dissertation or and in your, the wheelhouse of your expertise. Classical, hundreds of years. In the modern, modern historians do like, um, you know, housing policy in Los Angeles in the 1960s. Um, it's that narrow because there's so many more sources mm -hmm. and there's increasingly large number of sources um, now. And it, it is literally, it will literally be impossible to get a full scope of the voices that we have now because there's so many. If you just, if you just think about the number of stories that are written every day, every major newspaper is putting out a dozen stories on Corona and the government reactions to it and stuff like that. There's zero chance any one historian, even a dozen historians, are going to collate all of that into anything cohesive. Um, and that's that's just off of like reliable sources. That's not covering the nutcase sources um, that are out there. Uh, and that's something, as I said, that's sort of the, um, you know, it's the, the glut of information. And then, you know, evaluating it effectively is also going to be um, an issue, as I said, so that democratization of ignorance and the elevation of ignorance um, over expertise, where people are like, well, I don't care what this, you know, guy who's worked for six presidential administrations says, I've got a mommy blogger who says that, you know, uh, raw apple cider vinegar will do it, um, you know, and it is great to cook with, but, you know, <laughs> just made an only with it yesterday. Um, <laughs> But, but I, yeah. I think that's that's certainly going to be a bar to to meaningful understanding. And then you mentioned neighborhoods. I also think if you think globally, I mentioned our our nation by nation reactions to a global issue. 
I think American narratives are going to look very different than, say, narratives in New Zealand, mm -hmm. where they have a functioning government with a good leader that are, is doing very well, um, or Germany, which is having its problems because it's such a big, diverse economy that has so many connections. And so many but again, they have, um, you know, they're, they're very interesting because the health policy is not set by Merkel. Um, Merkel's obviously, you know, uh, the federal leader there, but the, the health policies are set on a state by state level of the German states. So the Bavarian health minister makes a different choice um, than, you know, the, the one in, in Holstein, et cetera, et cetera. But they're all working together and their leader is a scientist. I, Merkel is a scientist and, and there's such a difference in her approach um, for so many reasons, but obviously that expertise being one of them. So a German's experience, a friend of mine lives in Munich. He's an expat right now. He's trying to, he's trying to, to move to Belgium in the middle of a, uh, an expat moving from Germany to Belgium in the middle of a, of a pandemic. Um, but you know, the, the way that everybody's handling it over there is so, so different. Um, you know, they just canceled Oktoberfest. Uh, which is an event that brings in 1.2 billion dollars a year um, to to Munich, and and uh, and no one's protesting that. Everybody's like, "Yes, this incredibly important economic and cultural event. Clearly, it needs to be canceled." Like we agree, that's it. you know. Yeah, I so, I'm, I'm fascinated by the um, one of the groups I belong to. There's a woman that's a and she's a, an American. She's from Baltimore and she lives in Paris, and she's been putting out these little vignettes of like what her life is like. She lives in Montmartre and, and it's um, so, and what I'm seeing is so much more uh, community. You know, there's a, a larger sense of like, we're all in this together. And there's like, it doesn't, I'm not seeing the um, c the dissenting voices. Everyone is just sort of on board and and the, the, the eight o'clock clapping for the health workers is like every single person is out on their balcony clapping. And I kind of have this like, envy of like oh that would be so nice to be part of that where like i go out on my balcony and i'm like yay and i can hear someone in the big building across clapping but i can't you know it's just like okay yay. and instead instead I, we have a protester yelling at a nurse in denver to go to china you know that's yeah. well these are the yeah these are these are broad cultural issues but i think the one thing that um you know, you're mentioning the collective responses in Europe and Germany. Those are countries where people's existence and ability to survive, for the most part, is not directly connected to their ability to work. There are much more robust social safety nets in those countries. If people are unemployed, they will still have health care. Um, they will still have options for subsistence until they can start working again. We don't have that in this country. So the fear factor is ratcheted up, I think, exponentially in, in people. You know, it, it is aggravating to see those images, but the, the fear that's motivating it, at least for some people, some people are just, you know. <laughs> but, but for, I think what I'm hearing in my community, at least, people are terrified of losing their jobs because they lose their jobs. There is no social safety net. There is yeah. no health care. There is no state. The state does not have their back the way that 
the state does in Germany and France and well, most of the European countries. I think that specifically is going to affect the types of stories that get told in America, at least in terms of working without a net, basically, because the stakes are higher. And so I think mm -hmm. I think we'll see more stories about that type of adversity obliquely mm. or, or directly that then, then I think the stories in, in Europe will, will have a different tinge to them. And I, you know, when Jennifer Fisher, she, she commented a few minutes ago about how responsible will storytellers be and, you know, who knows, but I, you know, there's a lot of good ones here tonight. <laughs> um, you guys who, who know how to do this, who know how to shape these narratives and, it is a huge responsibility when you're going to be dealing with this particular historical moment because how these stories are told are ultimately going to affect you know how future politicians and policymakers react mm -hmm. yeah like looking back at philadelphia did that shift how you know aids policy was viewed or t treated seriously or Carlo commented earlier, you know, MASH was about the Vietnam War, but it was set in the Korean War because it was before and it was at a remove. So, you know, I wonder how much of that kind of like, is this, can we say this is an, an allegory for what's really happening or what just happened, but we're actually setting it in this. It would be super interesting if someone did a Decameron set in Florence, <laughs> but it's totally about this. I, I think we, I think we got a good cast right here, actually. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're allowed to be in the same building together. Yeah. Well, in the same way Star Trek dealt with political issues at the time, but like we're putting them in space so we can talk yeah. about this stuff and it's not about, it's not about the thing it's about. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great point. I think you should do a salon on the mythology of uh, Star Trek. Well, um, but yeah, Mindy makes the point, it'll help displace the fear into something separate from real life. And, and Jennifer then said, well, what will horror films be more popular or less as we experience real fear? Do we want fictional fear? And I think we kind of do. Like, I think it'll be like those displaced, you know, how like zombie movies are always, a, they're always a metaphor for something like Dracula was about women having rights and feelings. It's so scary. Let's talk about them as vampires, you know? So I think we'll see that kind of thing. No, I gave up horror movies years ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I want rom-coms. <laughs> the, yeah. you know, with when events become real, I think that, you know, that idea that those narratives, the direct narratives fall out of favor. Um, I remember reading like, the fact that like X-Files wouldn't have worked in the mid 2000s because we mm -hmm. were dealing with a government we thought was lying to us on a regular basis. Right. Um, whereas it worked in the 90s where that was like, okay, yeah, we don't know, we don't trust the government on everything, but, uh, you know, enough. Um, yeah. And, you know, so I think that that's an interesting whether or not, you know, that it might just be too real to, to directly head on. Um, especially if we have a continued fear. You know, if an effective vaccine comes out in December, I think people are gonna, you know, these, like I said, all these stories of like, will sports ever be the same? I think if an effective, the moment an effective vaccine comes out and everybody's got it, I honestly think about 90% of people will go back the way they were um, for both good and bad. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't think we're gonna see, I would be surprised to see storytelling um, like the, the first round of say like Vietnam movies, um, 
like the deer hunter and apocalypse now and apocalypse now obviously you know like takes heart of darkness and, and grafts it on in this sort of like what the f was this all about um and just dealing like recovery from trauma like the deer hunter is just purely about trauma and trying to survive post-traumatic stress and we don't get a true questioning of government action in vietnam until like the mid late 80s you know platoon and full metal mm -hmm. jacket and this sort of like okay so our government marched young men into war and death for nothing and we're now finally after 15 years ready to address that um you know and some people still weren't i don't know if people watch the ken burns vietnam you know like a number of the the people who were involved in the anti-war movement as veterans, you know, that veterans anti-war movement in the second half of the war, like literally they don't talk about it ever. Yeah. Like the, talking to Ken Burns was like the first time they talked about it. They don't talk to their family. They don't talk to their friends. That's it. My dad has a friend like that. He did two tours as a radio man. Literally everybody else who went through the war will talk about it. Pete does not talk about it to this day, wow. you know, and like as a society, how much of that trauma will be there? How much will we go through that is, a, I think, a big you know, question. If it's a threat looming on the horizon, we probably won't deal with it even semi-directly. You know, I think the zombie movies and the contagion movies will fall to the wayside for a long time if this remains a sort of a palpable fear. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, I think we're going to lose our appetite for it. Um, so you're, what you're saying is I should shelve my quarantine rom-com for a while. Or get it out quickly. I think you should shelve any rom-com ever. Um, oh, come now. <laughs> They've been playing Love Actually constantly on, on HBO. Well, one, of worst, one of the worst movies ever. What? Oh. No. <laughs> go to go to teacher jail. Rob, I like you so much. There are, there are a few <laughs> terrible storylines. Creepy so. with the Bob Dylan signs. No, that's that's creepy. Yes, yeah, there's a couple storylines that are not great. But Colin yeah. Firth. Go watch. Go watch Ten Things on. About I Hate About You. That's a good rom. So great. Yes, and because it's adapted from Shakespeare. Thank you very much. Um, and Nia says artists being more socially responsible for the content they create will be a great effect slash result to come from this. And I think that mm -hmm. is yeah like absolutely i'm hoping that we yeah. hit that that we people value that yeah at the very least I, i'm sure we will see just like the aids epidemic did um you know brought about a wave of socially conscious artistic production mm -hmm. um i think we're going to see that but again you know sort of championing the rights of the communities most disproportionately affected by this um yeah. and i think we were already headed that way looking at income disparity and wealth disparity and lack of access to healthcare and things like that. Um, that has just taken what thin veneer of, you know, legitimate argument that, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. It's just taken that and just ripped it off and tossed it away for anybody who has any chance of listening. Yeah, I'm hoping that that's, we start to shine a light on experiences like that, experiences of people not of privilege and so we can start like let's address what's really you know that that whole like if none of us is if, if one of us is not well none of us are well like so let's start addressing who is who needs help and then lifting the rising tide lifts all boats very good thank you everyone so much for Absolutely. coming and for participating i feel like 
you know, we got to some, some truths, hopefully. And um, it, I'm more inspired now to focus my own storytelling on, you know, what stories merit telling and, and telling them in a responsible way um, that, you know, the more specific, the one of the rules is the more specific, the more universal the story. So like be telling a really specific story about someone who's going through this hit in a way much different than the way I'm being hit, um, I think would be, it'd be a really good way to tell a story. It might not be my story to tell, but these are the stories that I'm going to want to see. So um, thank hope- you. This was really fun. Yeah, it was. Thank you guys. And uh, hope to see you next week. Absolutely. Everyone be safe. Join us next time for a conversation with Valerie Hager. Her solo show, Naked in Alaska, explores her childhood and how her escape into the world of exotic dancing unlocked her creative voice. We'll talk about her journey to become a writer, director, and a workshop leader who now empowers others to find their creative voices. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out pagecraftwriting.com. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well.